Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association of Nevada presents Healthy Mondays with Apina of Nevada. Start the week healthy and right with interesting conversations on living a healthy lifestyle. And now, your Healthy Mondays host, Dr. Mary Faye Axon Armstrong. Aloha! Good evening. Magandang gabi po sa inyong lahat. Naimbaga sardam, maayong gabi sa inyong tanan. I'm yours truly, Dr. Mary Faye Axon Armstrong, founding president of the Asian American Pacific Islander Nurse Association of Nevada and professor in nursing at Roseman University of Health Sciences College of Nursing. Maraming maraming salamat po sa inyong pakikinig sa aming programa at patuloy na pagtangkilik sa Healthy Mondays. Uh, so I hope you survived the Labor Day weekend, and I hope you learned some tips about uh, taking care of yourself, especially when you're camping and when you are doing barbecue. And remember, I focused on food poisoning, so I hope you keep that in mind. But tonight, we have an equally important topic, a very sensitive topic that I think the Asian community and even uh other communities are afraid or hesitant to talk about. Um, I know a couple of months ago, I was flipping my Netflix when I'm watching and uh, some K-dramas, and I happened to fumble upon uh, its Indian uh, sort of uh, drama, and it talks about human trafficking. So you guess it, we're going to talk about human trafficking tonight. And I just wanted to uh, introduce our guest speaker tonight. She's an expert. I usually have like a, uh, a script about the topic. And my, uh, my iPhone is not participating with me tonight. <laughs> So I wanted to um, introduce Dr. Kathleen Thimson. She is an associate professor of nursing at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she serves as the director of the doctorate in nursing practice program and is co-director of the UNLV Community Clinic. Uh, Dr. Thimson was also one of the founding members of the Academy of Forensic Nursing in 2018 and the Forensic Nursing Certification Board 2020 and she served as the treasurer for uh, the FNCB until October 2021. So I'd like to introduce and welcome Dr. Timson. Hi Kathy, welcome to Healthy Mondays. Good afternoon and thank you for having me. And would you like to uh, say a few words uh, about your humble beginnings or anything that you want our listeners out there to learn about you or to know about you? Well, I think the thing that I'm most proud of is that I've been a registered nurse for 46 years. And uh, I've had an amazing opportunity to not have to work one day of those 46 years because I get to do what I love and love what I do every day. And I've had an amazing trajectory of that career. I, cert I uh, certified in wound management back in 1980 
and I was the 93rd person certified in the world in wounds, which actually began my trajectory of how my career evolved from the bedside at the hospital in the med surge unit and the critical care units to uh, the emergency room and then to um, crime scenes and the forensic aspects that I look at now, which is how I actually stumbled into the topic we're going to talk about today with regard to human trafficking. Yes, and I know this is the first time I'm meeting Kathy in person, and uh, we did have a, a Zoom session and we talked about human trafficking in many aspects. And uh, I guess you can ask yourself, what comes into your mind when someone's say human trafficking? You always think about sex human trafficking, right? But uh, Kathy had opened my, my, uh, my thinking about it's not only that, there's also the labor human trafficking, right? And also, uh, lastly, uh, the forced organ uh, transplant, right? Correct. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, I think uh, I wanted to advertise that uh, Kathy is also going to do a webinar session for us, for the nurses to uh, accomplish their CEUs, continuing education, and that's forthcoming. So we'll give you some information about that. But tonight, uh, I guess let's start at how did you uh, get yourself involved with the human trafficking uh, specialty and topic? So I was uh, finishing up my doctorate in nursing practice work and I had focused on elder abuse and exploitation and maltreatment. And um, I attended a, a seminar one day that my school of nursing, and I, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, um, where uh, I was teaching and um, they had a guest lecturer there who was talking about working with international victims of human trafficking and I was just spellbound with the information and um, I you know I had a totally misconceived notion about sex trafficking and had no idea, just like you uh, mentioned, uh, that it involved labor trafficking as well, and now organ trafficking. And so um, I left that lecture that afternoon, and I went immediately to the library and did a literature search and found a lot of information, and I called up a colleague of mine who is a professor at Washington University uh, in epidemiology, and she's from Japan, and I. I said to her, I said, Rumi, I said, we have to work on this project together. And uh, she's a data scientist and um, in psychiatry and uh, me being in nursing, I said, this is a perfect union. And she's like, let's go get someone from the Brown School of Social Work. So there were three of us, Dr. Tanya uh, Edmonds and Dr. Rumi uh, Price and myself. Uh, and we so we set about really educating ourselves about what is all of this about with the human trafficking and you know unlike the movies that you'll see uh, Taken and, and some of the other ones that are popular on, on Netflix or Hulu or whatever but you know people aren't typically abducted and um, it's much more prevalent and it's much more subliminal than that. And I think that uh, some work I was doing in the community at that time, uh, I had students working in an inner city setting, and we did a back to school event. And they did um, 
a, a uh, an education for students at this coming to this back to school event, uh, educating them about cyber crime and um, cyber sex mm -hmm. and cell phone safety, and we surveyed and did some education on 385 children in this inner city setting and those 385 kids were between the ages of 8 and 14 wow. and 72% um, of those children had met a stranger online 48% of those children met that stranger in person by the fifth encounter they had had either online or on their phones. 41% of those children had sex with that adult. And remember the ages, eight to 14. It's very young, right. So the more we started looking into that, that my students and, and my colleagues, um, we decided we needed to really advance the education and we were uh, affiliated with a very large health system. We had 22 hospitals in Missouri and Illinois. So we set about creating a um, collaborative network and over a five-year period we uh, recruited over 400 organizations to join this collaborative and be involved in either education, uh, involved in the research, uh, or the um, training and advancement uh, relative to um, getting people some sort of assistance and support and a recovery program. Um, through that time, I started a, um, an annual conference called Traffic School, and it was called Traffic School for Healthcare Providers. And we would have three to five hundred people come into our one-day conference and learn about different aspects of human trafficking you know and dispel a lot of the myths that we have um, and in concert with that then I had my students become involved and they would put on scenarios so we would have our theory component about trafficking and dynamics of trafficking whether it's about how people get recruited um, maybe well, I remember one of the sessions was about some of the language that's used and some of the vocabulary and we felt that that was important that nurses and doctors, uh, therapists understood the language so if they heard some of this terminology they could d pick up on the fact that this was probably a, a trafficked individual because at that same time we were really trying to dispel a lot of myths about people with tattoos are all trafficked, right? right. And it, there's, it, that's impossible to think that way, but we did think that way back uh, five to seven to 10 years ago. And now we know that, that having a yeah. tattoo does not mean that you're Because almost everyone has right. tattoos now. Exactly, Even exactly. if it's a little one here and some right. they have all in arms. And you know, in nursing now, uh, some facilities would ask the, uh, the students to, to cover it with their long sleeves, right? Right. But there is an article that uh, I think uh, a while back, maybe early this year, that some facilities are now going to allow it because even the patients themselves and families have tattoos and they're intrigued by it. So I think that it's important, and you mentioned about some language, and I think it's also equally important for our parents, family, 
guardians to be familiar with those language so then they can pick it up and I I think now there's a mechanism for parents and guardians to lock the phone or even the TV so then you can monitor the um, the children of what they're watching and they, you can monitor who are they talking to both on their cell phone and also both on their laptop or computers, right? Absolutely, and you bring up a really interesting point that takes me back to, I guess it was about 2016 or 2017. I was in Denver at a Sheraton Hotel. It was a lovely hotel downtown Denver, and uh, it was a forensic nursing conference. We had been there about a week, and so the, the hotel knew, I mean, they knew what the nature of our work was. Uh, whether it's, you know, death investigation or sexual assault, strangulation, whatever. So they knew that we were involved in some fairly violent kinds of behaviors. So my, uh, I brought a student with me to that conference and we went to eat and came back in the evening and we went to go up the elevator and you had to have your little key card uh, to activate the elevator and there were two children that were inappropriately dressed. It was October, November, and it was kind of cold outside, and they both were dressed in shorts and didn't have a jacket on, and, and just they just seemed really out of place. And uh, they weren't well-groomed either. And um, so I said to the one uh, little boy, I said, he looked about eight or nine, and I said, uh, where, where are you going? And he goes, we're trying to go upstairs, but this, isn't, this elevator isn't working. And I said, well, where's your key? And he said, we don't have a key. And I said, you don't have a key? And I said, who, who are you here with? And he didn't answer me. He just kind of clammed up. And I said, well, and then I thought, well, maybe they're afraid or whatever. So I said, you know, what floor are you going to? So he pulls out a piece of paper out of his back pocket and he, he, he starts reading it. And because I'm a nosy nurse, I looked over his shoulder and I was reading this and realized it's an email he got from someone and it said, you know, thanks for playing this game on Xbox or PlayStation, whatever it was, um, and you are officially named a winner, but you have to come to this Sheraton and it gave all the information about coming there and going to the fifth floor to room XYZ, whatever it was. Uh, to claim your prize and um, he he hurried and it gave him directions not to talk to people don't tell them where you're going or anything like that and I thought oh this is not good so um, I said come on we're, we happen to be going to the same floor our room was on that same floor so I said to my colleague I said why don't you go um, to the room and I'm gonna go get a coke out of the machine and some ice because I wanted to make sure that one of us were following these children to see that they got to the room mm -hmm. and so uh, we when we ended up meeting back at our room I said to her I said you know something isn't right here I said I'm gonna call security I said I think those kids are in danger what room did they go to so she told me so we called security and we were actually checking out the next morning and uh, it was about four o'clock in the morning when we checked out and I, we were, went to the desk and I said, so um, is the head of security here? I said, you know, I, I called in last night this concern and I was just following up to see what was found and they go, oh my gosh, you were the ladies that called in? I said, yes. And they said, you won't believe this, 26 children between the ages of seven 
and 11 were found in that room with three men over the age of 35, and they were being filmed doing sexual acts with each other. And I said, oh. So the head of security came up and he's like, you know, Sheraton Hotels takes this human trafficking very seriously and they were exploiting these children and they were gonna traffic them in porn. And I, you know, it, it drove home to me how we safeguard their phones, we're checking them and, and we look at when they're online, but we don't worry about them when they're playing a game and they're meeting all these strangers in those games. So um, the more I, I was getting involved with understanding the dynamics of, of trafficking, which to prosecute a case of traffickers, and those are the people, or pimps, we might hear them called if it, you're talking about prostitution, but it's the same thing. We're exploiting people through force, fraud, and coercion. So you have to demonstrate one of those mechanisms in order to prosecute someone for the crime of human trafficking, which is very difficult. Because when you get human beings involved that you're trafficking them and not say cocaine trafficking, you know, you can't, if you're driving down the street and the police pull you over and you have two kilos of cocaine or heroin or whatever, sitting next to you on the on the seat you you can't deny what that is that's but, evidence right right but <laughs> if you are pulled over and you have another human being there who says well i'm this person's niece or i'm their girlfriend or their mm -hmm. boyfriend or whatever uh, it's really hard to prosecute so um we became very active in our state with our attorney general at the time and um you know we were successful in getting some laws passed that looked at somebody who's making money on the transaction of selling a human being or not paying them proper wage for labor trafficking, um, that they were avoiding paying taxes. And that's the way we were able to get a lot of prosecutions for traffickers uh, in our particular state. So, so not really the, the fact that they are human trafficking, it's more on that avenue to get them out of the system. Right, so we yeah. had another case of labor trafficking, mm -hmm. and you know, sex trafficking is very much, it's, it's sexy to talk about, and people are attracted to talking about it, because there's some, some, a little bit of drama, I guess, in that story. Mm -hmm. So we don't know enough or think enough about the labor trafficking that goes on. Um, but typically, it's, it's occurring in the areas and neighborhoods that are uh, of the upper socioeconomic status. So you have a lot of people who are day laborers who maybe are movers, uh, maybe they are landscapers, housekeepers, uh, seamstresses. Um, you know, nail salons have kind of fallen out of grace. That's, that's they're legitimized now. So that that's a lot of the myth that you have a lot of trafficking going on in nail salons. That's maybe was the case probably 15 years ago, but not so much anymore. That's Those are legitimate businesses for the most there part. There are more regulations now, right. I believe, the license. I think that's when there's no monitoring and there's no way of, they have to register in order for you to monitor them. Right. So I think uh, you're right. You know, when you have your manicure and pedicure, then, because uh, a lot of times they will incorporate the 
the sex trafficking with those services now it's now being monitored right right so you know uh, so then the other aspect is this labor trafficking so we had a, a fairly large situation a big case that happened in that a construction company um, was shut down by uh, federal agents who uh, got a tip from, uh, it actually turned out was one of my students. She was in our nursing program. She was working on the human trafficking education, which we we're putting on this annual seminar. And uh, she would, um, on her downtime from school, she was an ambulance attendant, an EMT. And uh, she was on a, a run to go pick up a fellow who had uh, lacerated his leg with a saw mm -hmm. and uh, was hemorrhaging. And when she got him into the ambulance, um, the, the man's boss came over and, said, and tried to give her a couple hundred dollars to fix it right on the spot. And she goes, I, I can't fix this. He is, he's probably going to lose his leg. That's how bad the, the laceration was. He needs to go to the was. ER, right? Right. And Get she said there. he's got to go to the emergency room. And he was pleading with her, throwing more and more money on the floor of the ambulance. And she's like, we got to go. So she closed the door. And, and the man was a little enough coherent that she said to him, you know, your boss really cares about you. And he, he goes, no, he doesn't. And um, they they had another fella in the, the ambulance with him and that guy goes, he's right. He said, he do, they don't care. He's like, but they do take good care of us. And he, she said, what do you mean? And you know, she was tending to the man and he was stabilized in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. But the story unfolded that this group were 50 Hispanic men who had, were illegals who had come across the border to work for this construction company that was very successful and very large in Southern Illinois. And um, he had these 50 men housed in a pole barn uh, on a farm and eat, they shared one hose to do all of their showering or their bathing uh, and their drinking water. They had uh, a porta potty in that, um, pole barn and they were sleeping on the floor and during the day he would have them going in and removing asbestos from a school and some other buildings in the area of course illegally so you know the police raided the the situation because when she got to the hospital you know she had gotten this full story and she actually had called me and said you know what what should I do and I said you got to call the FBI tip line so they can investigate and I think this right. real-life case scenarios you're sharing with us and our listeners out there can happen anywhere absolutely yes. and it all it takes is one nosy nurse yeah. and one nosy EMT and good things she consulted you and so she had the direction to right. uh, to redirect the situation and get it investigated and so I think it's good to talk about this uh, real life case scenarios because again it can happen here right here right. in our neighborhood it can happen right here in our community and we don't even know it's happening it just breaks my heart when you mention the ages of these children that are targeting and I think that uh, at one point maybe before the COVID uh, pandemic happened we were partnering with someone and we were identified as Apina of Nevada was identified as a free zone, uh, human trafficking free zone. I don't know if you've 
heard about that initiative mm -hmm. where uh, the, each organization can be identified to be a, a free zone uh, human trafficking where uh, we have a training on it to identify if a group of people or an individual is being uh, subjected to uh, human trafficking. I think that's so. amazing and I think it's really important because even, the, the, I mean, the population that you would probably most likely interface with are very high risk for all forms of trafficking. And um, a, about a year and a half ago, I got involved in the forced organ harvesting mm -hmm. uh, situation. And that was kind of unknown to me prior to that. And I've been fairly well indoctrinated into uh, that whole mechanism. but how that affects us here in, in the United States is that because we have such a long wait time here to get an organ sometimes, um, you know, up three to five years to get a kidney maybe, um, or a heart, or lungs, liver, uh, the Chinese government has actually, they, they have a legitimized business where they have organ transplant tourism and they actually have opened up that business and you can go online if you need an organ you can go online and apply to get uh, this transplant and within a two-week period of time they can find you an organ uh, and making it like a, a business it is a business yeah. and the government there in 2019 pre-covid made about 2.7 billion dollars on bringing people in from other countries to receive organ transplants. Now the problem with it is, is that the way they get such a hefty volume and quantity of organs donated is that they arrest people for no reason, other than the people that they arrest are usually folks who are practitioners of some religious or spiritual group, the Taoist, the Baoist, uh, the Falun Gong, uh, Christians. Um, just want to make sure that our listeners out there, if you're just joining us, this is in China. This is not happening right. here in the U.S. or in our state right here. So what, what uh, Kathy is talking about is what's happening, legalized forced organ uh, harvesting in China. Yeah, right? so what happens is, and thank you for clarifying that and <laughs> dispelling any yeah. misconceptions. <laughs> Um, but what happens there is these practitioners can be walking down the streets and the police will arrest them. They'll handcuff them, they'll take a swab of their cheek inside of their mouth. Um, they don't even get their name. They do the swab of their mouth to get their DNA. So they can type what, what their blood type is and their tissue types and then they can find out what kind of an organ is needed for a person and so when the person inquires from outside of China they'll know if they have that person incarcerated and the reason they they prey on the religious practitioners is that they live very clean and very pure lives so they don't have diseases they don't have diseases of communicable sexually transmitted diseases or infections or uh, they don't drink, they don't do drugs, they live very clean, pure, spiritual lives. So the transplant um, is, is more apt to take 
and not be rejected, and there's less complications. And the government condones it. It's considered legal there. Um, the practitioners, the healthcare practitioners, the surgeons and the, and the nurses um, are forced to do these kinds of extractions and surgeries. But unbeknownst to a person, say, coming from the United States to get one of these organs, um, we're trying to advance that through the Academy of Forensic Nursing, advance information about this practice because a lot of our citizens are going to China to get these organs because they can get them so fast. Um, and the cost is considerably less. So let's say here in the United States to get a kidney transplant is about $150,000 for the transplant. Uh, if you go to China, you can buy your kidney and get your transplant and be taken care of after the procedure's done in a very uh, high-level five-star hotel by nurses around the clock for a few days um, for less than $20,000. And it is in real life case scenario and it's happening. Yes. So I think uh, for, for the purpose of uh, sharing this information, it's, it does happen. So. Uh, we have our free will, and I think of in the past, we think of uh, that situation would be you get kidnapped. It's no longer the case, even with the human, uh, human trafficking, with sex trafficking and labor. Um, now it's more on, because a lot of people are having, especially during the, the COVID, right? They lost their job. Poverty is really one of the factors that would drive people to go ahead and willingly do all these things. Um, and then I guess, uh, what is your, uh, what would you tell your nursing students when you are educating them about human trafficking and I guess going back to more application of this information of how we will educate our nursing students about human trafficking, especially assessment when they are in the facility? That, that's a great yeah. question. Um, there is, uh, we, we worked with a lot of survivors and those survivors uh, told us, and this was also validated in some literature in 2018 relative to the fact that 83% of trafficked individuals present to the emergency room at some point in time. And typically their hair is falling out or they're severely malnourished or dehydrated. Um, there, there's a whole set of clinical symptoms and, and signs that people present with. So we, we provide that information to our students and it's built into the PowerPoint that you know the folks at Roseman will be getting in the next couple of weeks, um, or next month rather. Um, the other thing that we, we talk about, which is really important, is about educating our patient, uh, the victim, even if it's a suspected victim. You wanna be sure to inform them that there is help there is support out there for you um, and give them that information. Now, those victims may not always leave what they call the life, and that's part of their vocabulary, leaving the life of a trafficked individual because they may know that someone that else that is being trafficked is in danger. So it's important to educate our patients uh, at the time of the, the care encounter about what support and help is available to them. They may not leave at that point, but they know 
where to come back to that's safe, just like your organization. You, you let people know that it's a safe place to come and that you will help them get to some safe refuge or some safe place. Resources Some temporary out there. shelter, yes. right? And so we really don't want to try to rescue people. Rather, we want to empower them. Um, and that's a really important concept when you work with victims or survivors of any kind of trauma is that you are empowering them to be in charge of their life. And that's part of what we also teach our students, not only about the dynamics of, of, of human trafficking or whatever the, the situation is, but rather um, we really try to teach them about trauma-informed care. So the victim um, empowering them is more on um, helping them to understand that they are still worthy as a person. Correct. Because if it's already happened and they're already in the in the process or in the system, they are already unclean to them to think for themselves that they are already unclean. I might as well just do this and and uh, empowering them that this is not the life. This life is not something that you have to live with and that you are worthy you are worthy as a person and that you can get out of of this kind of life and i wanted to share when the first time i went to uganda africa as a mission trip uh one of the uh member from from our church part of our team uh found out that there is a church that helps people who are in the human trafficking uh the prostitution so she went with another person and went to that church and it is like a, a hut where there's uh, the ground dirt on the floor and she sat with them, uh, uh, several of them who came to that service and prayed with them. Um, and uh, for some reason they know uh, how, much, how much Ugandan shilling she has and she said, how much does it take for you to live this life? And so she said how much, and then she gave them. And then she went back to our mission trip, and I said, oh, okay, uh, just to understand that they can't get out of that life with just one time and with the, the shillings that you gave, it takes a while for them to, to really break out of that life that they got put into or forced into, or maybe it's not forced, maybe the poverty itself got them to to that most situation. Of, most of the victims, when you look into the victimology profile, they are vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. They have usually come from a place of trauma. And here in the United States, we, you know, one of the things we're talking about is adding another vital sign, and that is to take your ACE score, your Adverse Childhood Event Score. Mm -hmm. And that was a big study done in the 80s uh, by a physician by the name of Folletti, who was working with obese patients who were losing weight, but they'd all gain weight back. Mm -hmm. And so what he came to understand, or wanted to understand was why were they gaining weight back? And 100% of those patients had adverse childhood events of which he classified them into 10 different domains. So today we have this adverse childhood events or your ACE score uh, that you can you can take an inventory on yourself if you Google ACE or Adverse Childhood Events um, inventory, 
and you can find out what your level of trauma was. So it's a score of zero, if you have none, to 10, which 10 is pretty severe trauma you've experienced as a child. And we have to remember that your, your nervous system or your neural development of your brain um, takes place before you're age five. So things that are traumatic and bad that happen to you before that age really hardwire you to being extremely vulnerable and to having more um, maladjustments emotionally. And now we know from the work of the last 40 years with the ACE study is that that ACE score is actually a predictor of if you're going to acquire a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they want to put that into our vital sign assessment, just as important as your blood pressure, your BMI, your height and your weight, et cetera. Uh, as an indicator for chronic disease. So that's a way that we can detect early signs of, or your risk, your high risk for having this. Correct. So I wanna go back to when you say before five years. So that's that adverse event in your life before five years, it's really already embedded, but you won't remember exactly what happened, but it's already hardwired. You said it's already in here that something happened before I was five years old and that that triggers some some negative feelings or some negative uh, self-image with my with, with that within individual your, within yes. yourself yes and you just can't explain it and I guess you know with therapy then uh, our our father of psychology when he said about the aid and ego super ego that's there something happened in your childhood that that's why this is what's happening to you. Correct, yeah. and so when we talk to students or whoever we're talking to about this trauma, we talk about that as the neurobiology of trauma, and that really impacts how people react when they come into either being cared for or maybe when they're arrested. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, a lot of people don't act the way we think they should act, and part of that is that They've been conditioned to live through trauma and survive it. So it's like not a big deal. So then uh, if we judge people who are, for whatever reason, got sucked into or into this human trafficking, it's easy to judge other people when we don't know what's happened with them. You're absolutely yeah. correct. So there's so many things we can talk about human trafficking and I'm so glad that you're you're here with us to kind of clarify some of the myths and also the reality that it does happen and it could happen here and uh, I mean sad to say that it could happen to anyone if we're not aware of what's happening or the signs and symptoms or the risk factors around us. Right. Well, time flies when we're having fun, Kathy. That's my cue. So I guess, you know, I always ask my guests, uh, what would be words of wisdom that you wanted to share to our listeners out there regarding um, human trafficking? I think be aware that it occurs underneath our noses and right in front of our eyes. Um, you know, volunteer with a reputable organization who is committed to working with uh, survivors. Um, don't judge people. Uh, and um, make sure that you're looking after your children or your grandchildren and uh, you're asking them questions about 
who are they playing these games with or who are they talking to online and social media is a whole nother topic about how you know you can get into this besides cyberbullying, but you the know, scammers recruitment it <laughs> happens so just being aware and okay. thank you for your attention to this topic today and um Hopefully there'll be more discussions about these kinds of things. And I'm looking forward to our webinar session um, that we're doing in, I believe it's in uh, I think it's October. October. It? Yes, yeah. October. So uh, thank you so much, Kathy, again. Thank, thank, you. thank you, PHLB Radio, Johan and Flora, for giving us this platform to uh, share this important information to our listeners out there. So uh, we have more topics for this September. So uh, keep watching us and thank you. Maraming salamat sa inyong pagtangkilik sa aming programa. And remember, our listeners out there, remember, every Monday is a healthy Monday. Aloha! The Asian American Pacific Islander Nurses Association of Nevada has just brought you Healthy Mondays with Apina of Nevada. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.